whenever we come to a place in which we're all, we're all looking to make a moral decision on matters of right and, and wrong, on matters that have consequences not only to us as individuals, but also to how our choices can also affect our families and the community to which we belong, it only stands to reason that where we start is just as important as where we end up. And within a moral framework that is based in liberty and the self-evident freedom, which is inherently ours, simply because we exist, it also gives us room to make mistakes. I've made them and you've made them. In fact, the only way in which we can actually identify a choice we've made as a mistake is by understanding the difference between right and wrong. Without a moral law to anchor us and inform us, how could we ever know what is good and what is not good, what is good and what is evil? The story of good and evil is the most basic of our instincts. It's hardwired to our consciousness. It's described in the simplest of formulas as, as in 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 5. To the most complex systems that define the societies we live in, as in not murdering or not stealing. This conflict plays out in all of our greatest adventure stories to the greatest wars fought in human history. And certainly, we can argue on the merits of whether every war that has been fought was actually justified. But, but take, for instance, b both World War I and World War II. Both, both were a result of evil systems run by evil men in order to take control of the world. And in both cases, those on the side of freedom won, and many who had been oppressed were freed. And it's why we can celebrate when good when, when, when good, the sight of good wins in our novels and, and the movies that we watch. Because if evil wins, the story feels incomplete. There's no period in the sentence. And there's no end of the story. There has to be a second part to it. It also shows the boldness of the human spirit to hope even against all hope. That, that can't be the way the story ends. And no matter how anyone may try to spin it or throw it, you, you can't deny the presence of a natural law that governs all of us. And we, you and I, we are proof of it. The good that, that we wish for ourselves and for others, for our children... And for their children is proof of the existence of this moral law and, logically then, of a moral lawgiver. In the last episode, we spent some time looking at the liberty of all humankind within the context of this law. And so it follows that without law, without this natural law, man cannot have liberty. Even the Greeks understood this. Natural law is what determined that all men had value and the ability to accomplish something. It's what they referred to as a telos. And telos is a word that 
uh, derives the meaning of a final destination or a purpose. And it's not enough in, in other words, that, that we are virtuous. It, it's, it's more than that. It's that, that, that final destination or purpose is not about us being good moral people. And it's what our modern day culture would simply describe as being a good person. Virtue was to the Greeks a formation of a character over time, a growth of any individual to embody those things which create in a person the capacity for good. In other words, it was something they must learn and choose to be. But this requires for there to be an objective telos, an objective purpose to which we can all agree is the basis for a good human character. It's not made by any man, but by a designer, one who is responsible for the beginning of life. Because the origins of natural law by the Greeks serve as a foundational basis for the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights under the United States Constitution. So then government does not give us our rights, it simply guarantees and defends them. And that is what separates this country from all other countries. The recognition that we are created, and it is because we are created, in other words, we're created by an intentional designer that makes us equal in value and makes us free to be and to live as we see fit. The, the, uh, the Declaration of Independence was not a document in which these principles were all of a sudden conjured up by the authors. The Declaration is simply a recognition of what was already there to begin with. And these principles are immovable, unchangeable, self-evident. And this is why when these principles are threatened by any opposing power, even by the abuse of powers in our own system of government, the automatic response is to stand up against such abuses. The human spirit cannot abide to be forcibly compelled to do anything against our own conscience. When systems of government have tried to control the people to do anything against the will of the people, it has always resulted in conflict and in war. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't control the will of the individual. It's a violation of our most sacred trust. It's a violation of our existence. And this is why we have a law to unite and inform us of our worth and our mutual respect towards one another. The basis of our system of law, and even European law, is the Ten Commandments. Christian and non-Christian alike know what this law is. The most basic universal principles of human worth. Take these commandments, for instance. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Do not bear false witness to your neighbor. In other words, don't lie to your neighbor. And do not covet anything that belongs 
to your neighbor. These commandments pretty clearly state the way in which we relate towards each other within a community and a society to which each of us belongs. To steal, which is the Eighth Commandment, is to violate someone's personal property. Things which that person by his or her own labor and capital earned to be able to obtain. To steal is more than just to take material things. It is to spit on the work that individual had to engage in in order to honestly come by those material possessions which he or she now enjoys. It violates the worth, not only of the labor done, but the worth of that individual to own that which he or she has purchased with what is rightfully theirs. And the, ten com- and the Tenth Commandment, uh, which, which talks about coveting that which is your neighbor's, and while it is a separate commandment, is, is almost an extension or an amendment to the Eighth Commandment, because it goes even a step further by stating that you are not to covet, even desire, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Again, another statement to the right to private ownership. That's what these commandments speak about. This isn't just an American way of life or principle. It is a universal principle. To respect the worth and value of each individual goes far beyond just stealing. It even goes as far as just the desire or want to possess what your neighbor already has. To covet is also to disrespect the worth of your neighbor and also violates one's worth to say that what I have or own in in my own possession isn't enough. I must have what my neighbor has in order to feel equal. And here another principle of our fabric of society becomes realized. Equality isn't measured in possessions we have or the money we make or what is in our bank account or the jobs we have. Each of us is distinct with his or her own gifts and skills that each of us possesses and that we can cultivate through education, training, and hard work. So the commandment here is to really beware of greed, to want more than what you already have, that you have already acquired by your own hard work, and even worse, to want something that doesn't belong to you in the first place. And it's curious that the commandment will not only refer to material possessions here, but the tenth, but the tenth commandment also goes as far as to warn us against even coveting our neighbor's spouse. Because just as the seventh commandment states, you shall not commit adultery. And here, this one, this commandment, becomes even a little too personal for some. However, it goes towards the very principles of human worth. Think of it. When, when two people out of love and commitment come together in a binding relationship, that this is as important as any contract we make with any business partner, and in fact, even more sacred than any other business relationship or contract we may um, sign or go into, because it involves the willing commitment of two individuals to be faithful to one another for life. Till, till death do us part, right? 
In effect, it recognizes the worth of each individual, this this commandment. It acknowledges that in saying that I am taking this other individual to be my own and giving myself to the other as well, that if ever this were to be violated, I would in fact be stepping on and destroying the value of the other individual that I have promised to be faithful to. Because in taking someone else to whom you have not made such a commitment, you are in effect saying that that person to whom I am married to isn't enough. He or she doesn't have that sacred value. It isn't enough for me to hold and be faithful to. I must have more. Again, the issue of greed, of wanting something or even someone that doesn't belong to you in the first place. And this takes us to an even more obvious commandment to which I would think most of us, if not, if not all of us would agree with. You shall not murder. Life is the most precious of things. It's one thing to lose someone to an illness or to an unexpected accident. That's one thing, and that's hard enough to deal with. But to lose someone because someone else willfully took that person's life that would have otherwise still have been here with us, if not for this person's actions, regardless of the reason why he or she took the life of our loved one. And of course, to murder is to have a motive and a purpose to willfully take the life of someone else. Not only do we violate the worth of life itself, but of that precious individual. And not only that, we rob a family. We rob a circle of friends, a community to whom this individual belonged to and was valued by. It affects more than just the person who was murdered. It affects a mother, a father, a child, a friend, a wife, or a husband. And all of these commandments or principles all reflect one thing, the sacred value and worth of life in general, and the sacred worth and value of every single individual who has life. And we haven't even mentioned the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and your mother, so that there's a sacredness in, in family life as well, to the children who are born to us, that they must respect and give obedience to their parents, because it's a sacred trust. These laws represent the foundation by which each of us is able to live and to live free. Now, by whom are these laws given? By the one who created life itself, the designer of life. So if we recognize these laws to be relevant, to which we should all live by and adhere to, then it follows that we each recognize the lawgiver and the designer to be the qualifier of our existence. We acknowledge that keeping these laws represents the good we each should look to possess in our very characters, and that breaking these laws represents everything that is opposite of good. It is the essence of evil.
When any skeptic, whether religious or non-religious, makes statements about God or the law which he gives to us as unjust, they use the very moral model to which they object to, to accuse the law and the lawgiver. And whether they are aware of it or not, they already admit to a model of just and unjust, good and evil. And otherwise, their own accusation falls flat. Most naturalists and humanists adhere to a relativistic worldview, and that there is neither good or evil. There is simply what we are pre-wired to do because of nature. In that case, there's no such thing as free thought or free will or worth to the uniqueness of each individual. We're just a collection of proteins and atoms. But when someone asks if murder is wrong, then we must be able to have an objective moral principle to which we can point to in order to give any credence to the answer that we give. And it's to this very point on naturalism that we turn again to Martin Luther King when he makes this statement on humanity itself. He says, quote, I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. And I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life which surrounds him. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I still believe that one day mankind will bow before the altars of God and be crowned triumphant over war and bloodshed. And the lion and the lamb shall lie down together, and every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and none shall be afraid. I still believe that we shall overcome. Unquote. Many turn to MLK as a source of justice in our time, whether they believe in God or not. And what we should realize then is that Martin Luther King lived by the very principles of this law and this lawgiver. They don't come from some nexus. They don't come from, from some big abstract. They are the very things that shape him and convict him of his mission and his work. That all men are created equal. We're not made equal by other men. We are created equal by one creator. And ever since the modern and postmodern eras in which we're living in now, we come, we, we come to another potential shift in power. That's what we're coming to. And this shift has been decades in the making with this idea that God is dead and we have killed him. And if God is dead, so then is his law also dead? We can do as we please. We've been freed. This is at, at least how the atheist or the naturalist would respond. And yet the same old battle for control has never changed. And as we looked at um, during last week's episode, this period of the Middle Ages, we find that this battle for control to be dominated by the religious power of Rome was pretty real. 
and over a period of 1,260 years, roughly. And when this power becomes corrupt and becomes tyrannical in its rule, the French Revolution comes as a result and breaks the power of the religious state in 1798. Again, proclamation of freedom is made, but only to lead to the tyranny of other men, by other men. From religious rule to secular rule. What we might recognize as this right and left paradigm. This pendulum seems to swing back and forth throughout history, never really finding a good balance until the United States of America. Now, in 1798, America was a young nation, and yet its supremacy wasn't based in, 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 in an overarching uh, rule, but in liberty. And that liberty wasn't based in chaos, but under the principle of law. A law that isn't established by men, but by the Creator. And it is this liberty based in self-evident law that ultimately defeats the tyranny of kings, that defeats the evil of slavery, that frees innovators to invent and create and, and establish a new era of industrialization and commerce, giving opportunities of wealth and ownership, not just to lords and to monarchs, but to the people, and that gives way to the continued fight of civil rights to all people regardless of skin color, religion, or creed. We would recognize all of this as good because of the principles that lie behind these events. We also recognize much of the evil done by men in the name of religion and liberty. Where the arguments made against America and its framework become convoluted are when academics begin to talk of the evils of capitalism and of individual freedom because of greed, the poor, the, uh, you know, the wealthy, etc. Now it goes hand in hand with the arguments made against God because of the evils committed in the name of religion throughout history. The issue comes when you attack the source without considering that those who acted in the name of God or in the name of liberty were acting against the very principles established by God and by liberty. The problem isn't God then, nor is it individual liberty or capitalism. The problem is human nature. The Roman Catholic power of the Middle Ages acted against principles it was supposed to represent, making it a force for evil, not a force for good. In the same way, those who have acted in the so-called name of liberty to take advantage of the poor and the weak and acted against the principles of liberty, therefore making these figures a force for evil, not for good. But this doesn't mean, then, that liberty is evil or that God is evil or that capitalism is evil. It means that those who take advantage of the freedoms they have, who make the obvious choice to use that freedom to do evil, are the ones to blame, not the principles themselves. Human nature is the problem. It's human depravity. And this itself is evidence of an objective moral law which is always at work to help us and inform us and to point us to a higher source that works to build a good moral character within each of us. 
I wonder why it is that naturalists argue so vehemently against this reality. If the principle is sound and good, then what matters is what men choose to do with their freedom. If our choices and actions act against the principles we claim to believe, then we're not living in line with those principles, no matter how much we may cling to them. And this is the problem with the accusations made by academics. They fault the principles. They fault the source, not the individual choices that people make. If, if, if one lemon is spoiled, it doesn't mean that we go cut down the whole lemon tree. This is where postmodernism gets it wrong. If there is no law, save what I want and what I wish, this gives way to tyranny, just as much as religious and political power unchecked leads to tyranny. It really comes down to this. Those on the far left seek to control through the power of the state. And those on the far right seek to control through the power of the church. Absolute or majority power on either side leads to tyranny. This is why the separation of church and state has been one of our key components to our freedom, and that neither should interfere with one another's affairs, but exists only to inform the people and the individual and in how we should all live. And while we seek for solutions, we can and should work together with those separations in place and never at the expense of individual freedom. This is where the Roman Catholic power of the Middle Ages failed. Their form of mission became an act of forcing the belief uh, in God unto every individual on earth by force. In the same way, secular powers through Marxist and socialist regimes have attempted to force the will of men to the point of killing millions themselves. And we've reviewed these in past episodes under the dictatorships of Mao, Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini. Both are wrong. They're both evil, and both go against the principles of liberty that we find in this law, in the Ten Commandments. And this is what makes Jesus and Jesus' worldview so starkly different and unique. Never does he force himself or his message on anyone. The choice to listen and to follow uh, and, and to follow his message is on the listener. It's on you and on, and, and on me, and it still is. If we can agree on the laws of man's liberty, don't steal, don't murder, do not commit adultery, don't lie or cover it, or, or, or covet uh, towards towards your neighbor, then I wonder what is it about God that so many cannot accept? He is for liberty. He is for the good. He is for our salvation.
The issue for most skeptics besides uh, on the matter of God's existence is the matter of the other commandments found in the law. And they're the first four. We've only discussed the, the last six. You're not to have any of the gods before me. Do not make or worship any idols. Do not take God's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Are these good moral laws? Let's put it into the context of marriage. When you take a wife or a husband, you make vows to stay faithful only to them and no one else. It's, it's a covenant pact that you make because love is that sacred. I'm sure that there are a lot of people, whether they believe in God or not, who may have experienced betrayal by family or friends. Is that emotion even viable if we're just a combination of atoms and molecules with no individual conscience? The feelings of betrayal come because of the allegiance and faithfulness one begins to form for their closest friends and family. It gives way to trust. And when that trust is broken, we feel that betrayal deeply. It goes both ways between friends and closely knit family. Because we seek for those bonds. That's why marriage is so cherished. And it's such a sacred pact between two people. When one looks at the context in which the law is given, it comes after a whole entire people have been oppressed and enslaved by another nation that used them as nothing but workers to benefit the oppressing nation. And most of us know the story. There have been movies, dozens of movies made about, about Moses and the story of the freeing of his people. And if you've never read, read it from the original document, then go to Exodus. Go to, the, go to the book of Exodus and read it for yourself. It's a fascinating and powerful read. God frees this enslaved people through Moses, and it is after God frees them that he himself seeks to reestablish this covenant with them to guarantee that they are, in fact, free. Giving them this law through these Ten Commandments gives them a, a foundation in liberty to remember that they were once enslaved and were once oppressed and that their liberty was taken from them and that in respecting God and one another through this law, by this law, it only made them aware that this is how liberty is preserved, by respecting the one who saved them and also their neighbors, to those that they live with and relate to. This is what creates a true and lasting brotherhood. It is what creates and builds a true and good character within the heart of each individual. There's a famous story found in the Bible when Jesus encounters a lawyer. The lawyer comes to Jesus and he poses this question to him. He says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answers, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second one is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he takes all ten commandments and sums them up into two simple statements. Love God, who gave the law and gives us liberty, and love your neighbor by respecting him or her. And then after he gives this answer to the lawyer, he backs it up with a, with a story, which Jesus was great at telling stories. We all know that. If you're familiar with, with, with the gospel stories, he always told parables to back up or make a point uh, to his listeners. And this, this story is one that we're all familiar with. It's, it's really a, a universal story. Because even to this day, the story that he tells is the story of the Good Samaritan. To this day, we still use the term to refer to acts of goodwill that are done on behalf of others without the asking or any law to force them to do it. Good Samaritan acts, right? In fact, in the midst of this pandemic, we see people more willing to serve their neighbors in need to make sure that they're not neglected. Because this pandemic has revealed the fact that there are two sides. One side that's, that's afraid of this, of this disease, of getting it, and so that to them these stay-at-home orders make sense and that we should all stay home so we don't pass on this disease to others, especially those who are more vulnerable. But on the other side, there are those who feel like their liberties are taken away because they're not allowed to work. And even today, there are stories coming out of people being arrested and those who have tried to open up their businesses who are now being told you got to close them again because they're not following the, the rules that the state or government has given them. And in the midst of all of this, we see these wonderful stories of one human uh, doing good for another simply because it's the right thing to do. This is the exact type of living that expresses that character of goodwill, that recognizes where there is need and doesn't just complain about the fact that there is a need, but instead of complaining, actually goes and does something about it. And it is this very character that is inherent to not just the law, but the lawgiver himself. What good is a law if the lawgiver doesn't embody the character of that law. The actions taken in history in order to somehow free the world by force in the, in the, in, 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 in the name of some greater good did nothing except enslave the human race. And now that we find ourselves in a global crisis today, we see measures being put in place by local and state governments that seek to protect the public by also forcing the will of the government on its citizens, all in the name of the greater good. But where does this all end? Because this pandemic, this disease isn't going anywhere anytime soon. From what I see, there are no answers or solutions that protect the public well-being and, at the same time, preserve individual liberty. And if there's one constant that always seems to repeat itself, it is the suppression of liberty in the name of the greater good. 
The law of liberty, that is the foundation of our existence, cannot be forcibly taken out of the heart of men. It just can't. And never has and it never will. Governments will try as they have in the past. And what we should be watching for, as we looked at last week, in last week's episode, is any attempt at unifying church and state power together for, quote, the common good of all men. It may sound good in, 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 in words, superficially it may sound good, but history has shown us that this, uh, this power that needs to come together for the common good of all men, it never ends well in deeds. It may sound good in words, but never ends well in deeds. And that is why I have asked and continue to ask, what is it that ends all of this? What takes us to this global utopia that so many still talk about, the ending of climate change and and the ending of this pandemic? The answer is not in the preservation of this earth, but in the salvation of all life from earth. And if we take a long look at the law of liberty, we come to understand that it is not based in tyranny, but in love. It's really put simply like this. God loves the world in this way, that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. Is there another answer that gives us a law that is just? A law that gives us love? That is true? and that gives us liberty that is lasting, and that gives us everlasting life? I can't find another answer because it isn't there. There's always been an attempt to remake the world, and it's always failed. Imperial Rome was basically, it it represented power by conquest. It fell. Roman Catholicism was power by religion. It fell. The French Revolution took down priests and kings and crowned reason in their place as king. In fact, one revolutionist is quoted as saying, God himself was stripped of his holiness and reason accorded his place. With the toppling of state and religious powers came the cry for nationalism and the rise of collectivism. You didn't matter if you did not benefit the collective whole. These values that were born out of relativism shook the whole of Europe to its core until the climax of the conflict that came in World War II. And by that time, science and naturalism, even in its innovation, brought the world to the brink of nuclear war and to further division. The new enemies are no longer nations. They are existential enemies like COVID-19 and climate change. We can't see them, but they're there. Will the world unite in peace to stop these clear and present dangers while preserving the liberty of man? Or will the common 
or or will the common good and the collective take control? And in the end, neither activists, coalitions, governments, or church powers can offer anything to remake the world into a place where death no longer exists, or pain, or evil. Only Jesus offers that. It's only the worldview of Jesus. There is no other worldview that offers freedom from all of that. And it's all done, not through tyranny, not by force. Love is the answer. Because love never forces. It never compels by force. Love is offered, and it's freely given. It's ours because of our liberty to either choose to accept or reject the offer. And what love offers is eternity. Take it or leave it. But the time is now to choose. Because soon Jesus will come again and he will remake the world as it was always meant to be. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.